So we'll continue this afternoon in the cultivation of loving-kindness. Now following a little bit more traditional route. The content again yesterday was entirely traditional. The format, a little bit new. There's a very good reason for the sequence of this, of these four, starting with loving-kindness. I won't go into that right now. But in a way, the final one, equanimity, is really the culmination. It's the final flowering of the first three. It could sound like it also almost could be anticlimactic, loving-kindness, extravaganza, compassion, empathetic joy, and then, yeah, equanimity. But the equanimity is full, it's rich, it's ripe with all of the preceding three, and it's evenly distributing them, that is, the heart is equally open. So the cultivation of all four of these four immeasurables is uh, just enormously helpful for cultivating really any type of practice, for bringing about over overall greater mental balance, for proceeding along the path uh, to enlightenment. Uh, so I don't really know of anything more helpful for overcoming obstacles, uh, just kind of the, the issues, the problems that come up in the practice of shamatha. When I first started, started re, uh, receiving training in meditation uh, in the Buddhist tradition, uh, my first real teacher who you know was really a meditation master uh, was Geshe Rapten. I mean, there were others as well. Geshe Ngoan Taige, truly an accomplished meditator. But in terms of receiving one-on-one instruction, it was Geshe Rapten back in about 71 or so. And he taught me two practices. And so again, I don't want to go into a long tangent here, but one of the two they taught me, right from the very beginning, I knew almost nothing, was equanimity. Equanimity. And he said the reason for this, why he was laying that as a foundation for anything I would do, and now it's almost 40 years later, he said that virtually all of the conflict that we have with other sentient beings, especially obviously human beings, virtually all of the conflict we have is coming out of a lack of equanimity. I like these people, I don't like these people, those people I don't care about. Well, there's the problem right there. So to overcome that right from the very beginning is going to overcome to be the sweetest medicine for overcoming so many of the difficulties, the emotional turbulences, angers, resentments, cravings, jealousies, anxieties that are bound to be churned up in the practice of shamatha. There it is, the four immeasurables culminating in equanimity will really be a, a marvelous compliment. So on the one hand, we can look upon the four immeasurables as being indispensable aids for the cultivation and eventual realization or actualization of shamatha. On the other hand, one can say, but what's shamatha all about? I mean, why, why develop shamatha except for having the bliss and all that's very nice? But what, from a, deeper, from a deeper place, if all you want is bliss, I think ex- I've never had ecstasy, I've never taken the drug, but I understand that delivers the goods. I won't ask anybody. Um, <laughs> but if all you want is bliss, then, you know, there are drugs that will deliver the goods. And so shamatha delivers bliss, but then what's the real meaning of it? Well, the real meaning is the mind becomes so serviceable malleable, stable, clear, that you can apply that to the four immeasurables and they can just come into full blossom. So one can say, well, the four immeasurables are there to enhance, support your shamatha practice. Your shamatha practice is going to turn right around and just supercharge the four immeasurables. And likewise for the relationship with, with, between the preliminary practices, the classic preliminary practices, prostrations, vajrasattva, guru yoga, and so forth. Uh, again, I can easily go into long tangents here. But once again, it's a reciprocal relationship. The more there is genuine purification and genuine accrual of merit or accumulation of merit through the preliminary practices, 
that's just going to make your shamatha practice go much all the smoother. You'll be just knocking boulders out of the way. And you'll also be developing the merit, which is going to manifest as inspiration to really empower you along the path of shamatha. So the preliminaries, the classic preliminaries, the three principles of the path, all of this can be very good for shamatha, but the shamatha turns right around and tremendously empowers these practices as well. So the purification goes much deeper and the accumulation of merit far, far greater because the mind is so stable, so clear, right? So we, we find this throughout the practice, uh, the, the relationship between the four immeasurables and shamatha, shamatha and all the other practices. Shamatha helps them, they turn around and there's a kickback and they deepen the shamatha. And so among the four measurables, for very good reasons, we begin with loving-kindness. The sequence of the four is by no means random, and nor is, the, nor is this simply a random assembly of virtues. Uh, there's a profound interrelationship among the four. And so we start out with this note of loving-kindness, and if we go right back to the teachings of the Buddha, recorded in the Pali Canon, the sense of loving-kindness for ourselves. So the Buddha taught this 2,500 years ago in rural India, when I think big guilt complexes and all that kind of stuff that we have uh, were not nearly as common. They're really really quite a, a Western baby, this low self-esteem and all that kind of jazz. It's really quite Western. It's becoming global now. We're sh it's like a virus that we, you know, we came up with in the West and now it's catching, so it's catching to other cultures as well. So if it was, if it was true and important to cultivate loving kindness for oneself at the time of the Buddha, then all the more so now, so I would like to give maybe just three or four minutes, because I'm eager to get back to the meditation, but just a very brief kind of overview of the salient points, the really crucial points in the cultivation of loving-kindness. First of all, I think probably all of you will remember, or at least most will remember, what is the so-called near enemy or the facsimile, the false facsimile of loving-kindness. Whereas loving-kindness, what is it? Number one, it's not an emotion, it's an aspiration. It's a yearning, it's a wish, right? That can easily turn into intention, intention, and intention can easily then turn into benevolent behavior, loving and affectionate behavior. So it's an aspiration, and the near enemy, the false facsimile, is simply self-centered attachment. So remind me of your name. Carlos. Carlos, yes. I don't want to always be picking Carissa here, so sometimes go over to Carlos. And so if I'm developing loving-kindness for Carlos, then it's really about him. That is, he is the center of my attention. I'm focusing on him as a human being, a sentient being, and wishing, as I'm sure you wish to be happy, that's why you came here, to find greater fulfillment, satisfaction, meaning, and so forth. As you wish for this, and I'm wishing for this with you. And that's loving kindness, right? And so there it is. But then if the attachment starts coming in, and I'm thinking, oh, but what can Carlos do for me? Um, you know, whatever it is, I want to just keep that vague, but what can he do for me? And so I'm going to be really nice to Carlos here because I'm th I really want him to like me a lot and respect me. Maybe, oh, that's it. I need gratification as a teacher. So oh, that could happen. You know, I want people to really respect me as a teacher. So I'm going to be really nice to Carlos so he'll show me a lot of respect. Well, then it's just self-centered attachment. It looks like loving kindness. It has the appearance of it, but it's false. It's a false appearance because I'm just kind of doing it for my ego because I want to feel good about myself as a teacher. You know, so that could happen. And so there's the general false facsimile, is self-centered attachment, which can appear as if it's loving-kindness, and it's not. But let's come back briefly to this directing loving-kindness to ourselves, a genuine heartfelt aspiration, may this person here find happiness and the causes of happiness. Well, let's consider might that be, could that have also a false facsimile? 
because it is directed towards self. It's acknowledging, hey, this person is worthy of finding happiness. That's not a mental affliction. But could this, as we direct loving kindness to ourselves, could there also be a false facsimile to that? The answer is, yeah, of course. And this would slip right over into that which is diametrically opposed to bodhicitta, self-centeredness or selfishness. And the sense that my well-being is actually more important than Carlos's well-being. My, my well-being, when we're, when we're lining up for the food, my well-being, I should get the nice piece of whatever it is I want. I should get, you know, if there's only a little bit of ice cream left, oh, I hope I get in there quickly. Hey, I'm the teacher here. I want the front of the line, you know? And so as soon as there's that, the sense that my well-being is somehow more important than anybody else's, anybody else in the world, then that's self-centered. That's, that's not, that's not loving-kindness for oneself. That's just a mental affliction, right? So, I want to just touch one more point, and then we'll go to the meditation, because it's so important. And that is, what is the immediate catalyst for the emergence, the flowering, the experience of loving-kindness? Anybody remember? What's the immediate cause? It's good to remember. Just hold it like, like you're addressed, something you really, really know. The immediate cause. What, what triggers it? There's a nice, there's a real Western term. What triggers it? when we attend to a person, a human being, sentient being, what is it that, and this is classic teachings, I'm not making up anything here, but what is it that triggers, catalyzes, arouses as an immediate cause that sense of loving kindness? Exactly right. Seeing the lovable quality, seeing the lovable quality in the person or sentient beings that one is attending to. Seeing something there as one attends to Maria, to Carissa, to Carlos, and so forth, to Belsang. Say, well, there's kind of an older gent from Singapore, kind of looks ordinary to me. So one could just say, well, just, he's just one more sentient being. There are a lot of people in Singapore. He looks like a lot of them. So then you just write him off. It becomes an indifferent person. There's no loving kindness. He's just one person. That was very, but you notice how casual that was, how superficial. As I just direct my gaze over there, oh yeah, an old, older, about my age, maybe a bit younger. How, how superficial is that? It was kind of like looking at a painting, right? Well, loving kindness is not going to happen that way. So it's directing the attention and letting it linger, attending closely, attending closely. Until you see, until you get it, until your heart opens, and whether it's a middle-aged, older man, whether it's a younger woman, whoever it may be, and whether it's a human being or a non-human being, you attend and you're seeing with the heart. It's not, it's not being cunning. It's not being super sharp. Oh, I'm so smart, I just saw the lovable quality in another person. Right? We don't need to be hyper-intelligent for this. But it's seeing with the heart and seeing there is someone here who's, who's lovable, who's worthy of love. Right? They're ugly, they're, they're attractive, they're young, they're young or they're old, they're fat, they're skinny. That's all appearances. But we're attending to a sentient being here who's gazing back, right? And seeing there's someone here who, just like myself, is worthy of finding happiness. He's really lovable, right? So that takes, you can see now, with the shamatha can be very helpful, right? Because when we're not in the shamatha mode, if we're more in the OCDD mode, the obsessive, compulsive, delusional, and as my, as my attention roves, it's bound to just be attention, oh yeah, I, I remember, 
I remember you were being in the earlier retreat. Oh, yes, I remember our conversation yesterday. Oh, yes, I remember our conversation this morning. And so it just goes locked right into a whole bunch of conceptualizations and associations, and maybe I like them, I don't like, and so forth. It's basically the image that comes to my mind is I think probably many of you have seen the, the Peanuts, the Peanuts cartoon. And you remember dust, what was it? D not dustpin, pig, pig pen, pig pen. It's a perfect image. Pigpen was that little guy that was always so dirty that there was a cloud of, of, of dirt around his head. All, it was like a halo of dirt. You know, he just kind of brought up dirt. And it's a perfect image, is that as we're trying to attend to another person, to a Carissa, to Carlos, whoever it may be, I can't really see because I'm just thinking, oh, I remember her, and she said this, and I said that, and I like this, and I don't like that. It's little pigpen with this cloud of self-centered conceptualizations Filtering, sifting, interpreting, judging, hoping, fearing. But all I'm really doing is engaging with my own junk, right? And so shamatha lets that OCDD, that just that haze of smog, of, of obsessive and compulsive conceptualization, lets it settle down. And without desire or aversion, without hope or fear, without I, me, mine, just being present. Whoa kind of get a high, like, wow, there's somebody else out there. I just got it. Wow. There's, there's two of us. I just recognize there's somebody else here. Oh, no, there's more, you know? And so when the mind gets quiet, we can really attend. And when we attend, then we look through the pleasant and unpleasant, and we see there's a person there really worthy of finding happiness, okay? So we'll start with ourselves. Start with ourselves. Is there someone lovable here? And I want you all, you know, you don't have to do this, but you know what I'm saying. Pointing to yourself. Is there someone here who's really lovable? Now, just final point on this. Um, one thing that's very helpful in this regard is to engage with people who recognize that you're lovable. And I don't mean sexually desirable or that you would be a good business partner or what have you. That's all, again, that's all on the appearances side. But this is the great benefit of engaging with you know, people who have really devoted themselves to Dharma, spiritual friends who really have experience, that they're looking through the appearances. Those of you who have, have authentic teachers, spiritual teachers and lamas, you know, then they see you. They see you. And I felt this, oh, I've been so blessed by having so many teachers. didn't take much, um, but just that, to experience that from a person who sees you, you know. And it's not with rose-tinted glasses. It's not like pretending, oh, thinking that you're better than you are. No, they're seeing with 20-20. But even when there are faults, my teachers, oh man, do they know my faults. They don't have any kind of goofy notion of, I'm being something exalted human being or something. They know exactly who I am. But knowing what my strengths and limitations are, just this person, knowing, oh, there's really that love. Okay? So to experience that, then you say, oh, uh, if my teachers can see that, then maybe I should too. Right? Because they're, you know, they really have vision. And so there we are. Okay? Okay, good. Let's practice.
act of loving kindness for yourself, let your awareness descend into the body, right down to the ground, and settle your body in its natural state, relaxed, still, and vigilant. With each out-breath, release your mind, release thoughts and memories, hopes and fears. Relax in the body, release the breath, and continue releasing and relaxing all the way through the end of the out-breath until the next breath flows in effortlessly as you settle your respiration in its natural rhythm. Settle your mind in its natural state. This too is a one of balance. As you set your mind at ease, relaxed and comfortable, in stillness in the present moment, naturally clear and luminous, balancing the sense of relaxation of the mind with the clarity of your attention. for just a short time. Let the object of mindfulness be the sensations of the breath throughout the body.
then let's shift from this more passive and quiet mode of awareness, moving into the more active, the imaginative, drawing on the luminous quality of awareness. And let us focus this bright attention upon ourselves. We are not doing an ontological probe. We're not seeking out the nature of personal identity, probing at this time to see whether we have any inherent existence of our own. That will be for another day. But on a relative level, a conventional level, each of us here exists as much as anything else. We all are people. We are sentient beings. So direct your awareness inwards upon this human being that has your name, Attend closely to your aspirations. What is your wish? To what do you aspire? What would make you truly happy? Attend closely to this sentient being who wishes to be free of suffering, to find happiness. And as you attend closely, see if you can find that which is lovable. When those who truly love you, who hold you dear with deep affection, What person are they attending to? What kind of person? Attend with the eyes of loving kindness. To this person who is you, who is truly worthy of realizing your most meaningful aspirations, finding the happiness you seek. as you bring to mind what you envision that would truly make you happy, both in terms of meeting all of your hedonic needs, certainly you need enough to eat, clothing, shelter, medical care on occasion, but beyond your hedonic needs, your mundane needs, which are very important, beyond meeting these needs, What do you envision would truly make you happy, bring you the sense of satisfaction, of fulfillment, the deepest sense of contentment?
will proceed now further in the meditation, and you may do so in one of two ways. At least I offer, I offer two options. One is you may recommence the practice from yesterday of visualizing your own pristine awareness, your own Buddha nature, as a radiant orb of light at your heart, with each out-breath, as you arouse this aspiration of loving-kindness. Imagine immeasurable rays of light flowing out from this orb and filling your whole being with every out-breath. Or you may do it without visualization, simply breathing out. Breathing out as if from your heart, breathing out and filling your whole being. Each time you exhale, arousing the yearning, may I be truly well and happy? May I find genuine happiness in the causes of such happiness? With each out-breath, arouse this heartfelt yearning that you may indeed flourish and find the happiness you seek. each out-breath, may I find happiness and the causes of happiness. With each out-breath, then, let your imagination play and imagine realizing here and now the realization of your heart's desire. Experiencing the genuine happiness that you seek.
and now redirect your attention. This time to a person who is very dear to you. Just hearing this person's voice may fill your heart with a sense of affection, of warmth, of closeness. Seeing the person. Bring to mind a person for whom you find it very easy to see the truly lovable qualities in this person. It's very easy to feel a heartfelt wish. May you find the happiness you seek. Bring this person vividly to mind. And attend to the utterly lovable qualities that so endear this person to you. so far as you are aware of this person's aspirations, this person's vision for his or her own well-being, attend closely. And as you breathe out, breathe out this light of loving kindness from your heart, or simply breathe out. And as you do so, arouse the aspiration, may you, like myself, May you find the happiness that you seek, and may you cultivate the causes of such genuine happiness. With each out-breath, may you be well and happy. Each out-breath, letting your imagination play. Imagine this person actually finding the happiness, the fulfillment that he or she seeks. This embraces not only genuine happiness, but also hedonic well-being. It's so important that these needs, too, be met.
Let the appearance of this person fade back into the space of the mind. And bring to mind then another person who is dear to you, perhaps simply a friend, but someone for whom you feel genuine affection. And practice in the same way, attending closely and letting this person's joys and sorrows, this person's aspirations become real for you as you attend closely to them. each out-breath, imagine this light flowing from your heart, embracing and suffusing and satisfying the desires of this individual. Imagine him or her finding the joy that they seek. Release all appearances, release all objects of the mind, release all aspirations, and let your awareness come to rest in its own place, taking no interest in any appearances to the to awareness, just resting in the experience of being aware.
There are two aspects to the practice. One is the appearances. How vividly can you bring anyone to mind? Some people have, let's say, undeveloped visualization abilities. I wouldn't say they don't have any, they're just undeveloped. Just like in, they call it industrially undeveloped country, right? You could develop it, it just hasn't happened yet. And so some people might find it then frustrating. I right? said, bring this person to mind, but I really didn't see much. Right? So well, then what to do? And then he's talking about rays of light, I don't see them. And so, strike two, I'm out. <laughs> And so there's this, that manifest quality of the visualization aspect of the practice. And then there's the actual practice itself, and that is arousing a genuine heartfelt yearning that others like oneself can actually find the happiness they seek. So think of a parallel. I think a lot of you have had some exposure to or maybe actively engaging in Vajrayana practice. So I'm just going to make a brief allusion, but I think it's a meaningful parallel. And it may enlighten both of them. Uh, so think for those of you who've had some so empowerment. It could be Chenrezig. I'll talk about Chenrezig practice because in one lineage that I've received from the Kamakaikyu tradition, that's the Kaikyu and Yingma tradition, the Beyul tradition in, in Tibet, uh, the practice of Chenrezig was presented as a mangchu, public dharma. So you can talk about it freely. You don't have to have initiation, right? So there's one I feel free. I feel safe. It won't break samaya. And so let's imagine that you're practicing self-generation dissolving yourself, your ordinary self, into emptiness, okay? Because clearly it's not taking yourself and then doing an extreme makeover and trying to make yourself into Chen Rezi, right? But dissolving your ordinary sense of identity into emptiness and then out of emptiness, out of Buddha nature, Dhammakaya, then generating yourself as Chen Rezi, Avalokiteshvara. So when you're doing so, there are two aspects, right? On the one hand, there is the visualization. If you're engaging in such practice, you really do want to develop your visualizing ability, right? So that is a part, a part of it, with the symbols, the mudra, and so forth. On the one hand. On the other hand, having dissolved your ordinary sense of personal identity into emptiness, and after all, since you constructed it, your ordinary sense of identity, since you constructed it, then you have the right to deconstruct it as well. That which you have made, you can unmake, right? And so you have a right to do that, right? Now, if you decide you want to destroy this building, you can't do that because you don't own it and you didn't make it. Right? But the building of your own identity, well, that's your baby. You created it, you can destroy it. You can dissolve it, dismantle it, and dissolve it back into emptiness. And then out of emptiness, you develop what is called, of course, divine pride. Right? Divine pride. Now, between these two, so a little quiz time. I know some of you definitely know this, um, but others, if you want to guess, you're welcome to guess. Between these two, and intuitively, may already have a good sense of it. Between the pure appearance having dissolved your ordinary appearance and then manifesting with the pure appearance of Avalokiteshvara, that's one aspect, pure appearance, pure vision, pure perception, and then divine pride. Between those two, which one's more important? Which, one, which one's more? There's a, there is a right answer here, and the other one is wrong. <laughs> yeah, it's not a matter of opinion. It really is more important. Which one's more important? What would you, what would you guess, Carlos? Divine pride or pure, pure perception, pure appearance? Divine pride, yeah. That's the only right answer. It's the only right answer. And the divine pride is really that sense of identity that I'm arising from emptiness, from really Buddha nature, and really adopting that as your sense of identity. Right? That's more important. That's more central, more to the core 
than being able to visualize the, the four arms and exactly what was in each hand and you know, all that kind of business. That's also important. It plays a role. But what's more important between the two is that sense of, this is who I really am. This is my identity, right? In a similar fashion, it's really a rather close parallel. As you're cultivating loving kindness, on the one hand, bringing individuals to mind, imagining them, imagining their joys, imagining them finding joy, uh, maybe imagining, again, the orb of, orb of light, the rays of light going out, that's clearly analogous to pure perception, right? Pure appearances. On the other hand, there's the actual affection itself, the actual sense of genuine caring, of affection, of warmth, of, of love for the person. So now you know the answer, which is more important, having a very clear sense, a p clear appearance, really a great light show of fabulous rays of light going out. You know, you want to, somebody get a video quick, I'm doing such a great job, you know. <laughs> um, which is more important, the great light show, the great visualization ability, or actually having a heart of loving kindness? Well, the answer there is obvious. And it's a parallel, it's a pretty strong parallel. So for those of you, and there's, a, I'm sure, a lot of variation here, some, especially in my experience, artists, I know some artists, you know, spend hours a day focusing on the visual. Artists, contractors, builders, architects, such people very often, maybe they gravitated to those occupations because they had a natural ability for visualizing. If you can't visualize where squat, you probably don't want to go into architecture, right? But if you already have ability for that, you can already start envisioning, ah, oh, maybe like this, since so you're, you're, you're doing multiple sketches and three-dimensional drawings and so forth in your mind's eye. If you can already do that, then you might quite naturally be drawn to such an occupation, right? So people who are doing that occupationally, really using their pow powers of imagination, of visualization, and so forth, may find this practice really easy, bringing quite vividly to mind one individual, a family, a community, and so forth and so on. There are certainly multiple ways of engaging in this practice. And, so, and then the visualization of light may just bring a, a kind of a liveliness, a richness, a texture, that really makes the practice much more enjoyable and satisfying. But some people, that is, we're not all architects, we're not all of us really gifted or have a natural propensity for visualization. And to such people, I would say, don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. It's really secondary. But, but, but now we can certainly, and this is a really important point, important point and that is when you bring to, bring to mind someone, such as your own children, I'm sure, in, in, in Hedy's case, for example, do you have a hard time really wishing for your children to be, to be happy? I doubt it. It probably comes very spontaneously. But now perhaps, and I don't know what your visualization ability is, maybe you can visualize them very clearly, maybe not. That's a secondary issue. But even if you can't visualize, now with your children you probably can, you, you know them so well, but other people maybe not so clear visualization. But nevertheless, you can bring people vividly to mind even if you don't have a vivid appearance. You can really be attending closely to someone, even if you don't have a strong mental image. And that is you're just focusing on them, that person, right? So it doesn't necessarily have to have some clear vi mental visual image going along with it. It may or may not. But you can develop very, very deep loving kindness and even not have spectacular visual visualizing ability. Okay? So between the two, just going to the essence and sincerely, with this heartfelt wish, really longing for the well-being of the other. So we just started this in the sequence, starting with the self, and then going to a very, very dear person. It could be a family member. The, the, the monastic advice, and it's really it's from monks to monks, is don't attend to people 
for whom you tend to have, you know, real sexual desire. And you can imagine that's just not a good idea. If you're a monk, to bring somebody you find really sexually attractive and maybe... <laughs> I just want to give you a hug, <laughs> you know? And maybe a kiss, and well, we'll see where it goes from there, you know? So not really a great idea for monastics, where you're, you're very committed to the celibate way of life. Um, but for those of us who are not monastics, I'm not suggesting go to, you know, you're to, you know, to, to romantic, but, I, but again, if you're in a marriage or in a very meaningful, loving relationship, to exclude that person because, oh, no, I mustn't go on that person because I feel some attachment, that doesn't make any sense. You know, if you're really in love with someone, you have a very close and meaningful relationship, then in your loving kindness practice, say, no, Buddha Gosa said, and the classic teaching said, don't focus on a person who maybe arouse attachment and craving and desire. So I won't think about my wife. I won't think about, you know... Well, that doesn't make any sense. Because after all, I mean, we want, we want our close relationships to be as imbued as possible with loving kindness and not just with attachment, right? So for all the non-monastics, then if you already have a relationship that's very meaningful and maybe a romantic relationship, I just see no reason to exclude that person, but rather focus on the loving kindness aspect rather than the mere attachment aspect, right? But then for children, well, there's attachment there, of course, but good heavens, you mustn't exclude your children from such practice. And then friends and so forth. So you know the sequence. You start from yourself, you go to a very dear person, to a dear friend, to a more casual friend. And as you do this, you come back to it repeatedly. Then you just basically move along the spectrum. And you get to that big midsection of people that you just don't think much about one way or another. If they suddenly died, you think, oh, what a shame. And that would be it. You know, people die. So, so you know, it, really no attachment, no aversion. And attending to those people, to that large mid-rate region, of people that one doesn't have any strong feeling for one way or another, and then eventually go into the, um, the area that can actually be finally the most transformative, and that is attending to people you've really had a hard time with, maybe treated you badly, maybe they show a lot of mental afflictions, maybe some of their behavior is really, really harmful, and so forth. There may be people you know directly, maybe people you hear about by, the, by way of the media who have really brought misery to the world and then you embrace them as well. So that's the spectrum. And so that's one sequence. And we just started it. I didn't want it to go too long, so we did 24 minutes. So we begin with the practice of loving-kindness. So I want to stop there, um, but I want to make just one brief reference before we go to discussion, and I will read this, read this note that was left for me here. And that is, as you know, tomorrow we have a completely unstructured day. Now, my very sincere request and expectation, or it is really a firm request, is that this is part of our retreat. In other words, this is not a time to go off to the beach. Okay? This is a... Because it would just totally shatter any kind of continuity. There we are. So, but I think you all assume that, that we're here for an eight-week retreat, not six out of seven days, but seven out of seven days, and as much as possible, 24-7. And so tomorrow, we're, here we are still in this utterly marvelous environment, our food still being served, everything being taken care of for us, but now with no structure, because I'll just be pretty much meditating all day myself, and so then I'm, I'm really quite happy with this after having two full days of practice. Now it's throwing you back on your own resources for you now to have a complete freedom. Say, all right, what's, what's your schedule for today? You don't have anything impinging from the outside at all. Not a half an hour in the morning, not an interview, not an hour and a half in the afternoon. It's wide open and a day in this marvelous environment to do nothing besides practice Dharma. So what's your schedule going to be? So you decide. And you, and you slip into it, see how it fits. 
Um, but I'm thinking ahead, and, then, and on this point, then I'll stop, and we'll just open it up for discussion. But in eight weeks, we're going to be leaving from here. I'll be heading off to Australia and then eventually back to Santa Barbara. We'll all be leaving here. And as you anticipate, even here on what, day three of the retreat, as you anticipate what will be following this retreat, you might consider the possibility, I would, I'd really encourage it, that you would at least consider it, that even if you, like myself, cannot go f directly from here into full-time retreat and just doing nothing besides meditate all day, I can't do that, I have obligations. And I know a number of you do as well. Even if that's the case, if it's possible, if you can make it possible, to so take one day out of the week, one day out of the week, even in a busy schedule, maybe you're a student, maybe you have a family, job, and everything else, but one day out of the week, once a week, and just say, hey, this, this day is just for Dharma. This is my retreat day. And so these Sundays that we'll have, one after another, they'll each one be unstructured. Each time, you can obviously, you can modify this structure, but find what really works for you, that you feel you just blanketed the day with your Dharma, but you didn't push so hard, you felt exhausted, stressed out, all that kind of business. You just come to the end of Sunday evening for, wow, good day. That was just a day full of dharma, you know? Let your mind be, give up attachment to this life and let your mind become dharma. You remember that from Atisha, from Dom Dumba actually? And so, this, these, can, these seven or eight, however many Sundays it is, these are almost like dress rehearsals or preparations for should you want to take advantage of this opportunity, that you'll already be in stride, you'll know exactly what it's like to just set up your own day of your own solitary retreat and just know what it's like to have a day just for Dharma that refreshes, rejuvenates, revitalizes you, launches you into the next six days. Because that's what I do. That, that is, I really value the Sundays that I'm just focusing on my own practice. And then Monday morning, I really quite feel quite fresh, quite revitalized. I could do this indefinitely, you know, as long as I have my Sundays. <laughs> time to rejuvenate. So you might consider that, right? So let me just read this one here some, since something was left, a note was left, and then we'll just open this up for discussion. And I'll see whether this is public or whether it's private. Okay, sure, this is a public one. Um, I would like to ask for your advice regarding lucid, lucid dreaming. This came up twice in personal interviews already. When I'm in retreat and, I'm, and I make an effort, I'm a, I am able to remember two to five dreams per night, which overall, compared to, you know, generally speaking, that's very good, re, very good dream recall. It's a bit unusual, in fact. Okay? Not extremely exceptional, but two to five each night, that's pretty good. Which then is a boon, that's a big step in the direction of being able to have lucid dreams on a fairly regular basis. Okay? Uh, but none of them are lucid, so I can have a lot of... So in other words, I remember a lot of delusional dreams because a non-lucid dream is a delusional one. You got everything wrong, right? Even if it's a pleasant dream, your, your baseline is you're just, you got it wrong, you know? You thought you, you didn't know you were dreaming and you were, and so there you are. So sometimes I think I implicitly know I'm dreaming for when I dream something unpleasant, I frequently tell myself to stop dreaming that. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, yeah, a very good description. It is, it, the words were very well chosen, an implicitly lucid dream. And that is, it's not full-fledged, yowza, I am dreaming, which means I've got have a great bandwidth of freedom here. Let, why don't I start flying? Let's, you know, let's start really playing with this. Don't have it. That's explicit. That's really explicit lucidity, 
explicit recognition, this is a dream. It's almost like symbols, wow, this is a dream. But it's more, there, it's more implicit, such that if you get into some sticky situation or you get to be unpleasant, you say, ah, it's a dream, I'm out of here. And then you just wake yourself up or change channels. So very good choice of words. And it's not, again, the, there's a very broad gradient of lucidity. So this would be kind of on the low end. And that is not really clearly knowing you're dreaming. At the same time, if it goes sour, then, then it kind of kicks in. Hey, I don't have to put up with this. I can be out of here. That's really low end and quite acknowledged. And then it's more and more explicit, more and more clear, thorough, and so you really are a dream yogi. And you've really fathomed, gained deep insight into the nature of dream reality. You've really, you've really within the context of a dream, you've quite thoroughly and deeply and experientially ascertained the non-inherent existence of everything in the dream. And not just by meditating on emptiness, but actually by practicing, implementing, changing your conceptual designation within the dream and finding that as you shift your attitude, your expectation, the way you engage with, the way you intend to, that you can actually modify the contents of the dream. And seeing for, from your own experience that there's nothing in the dream, either subjectively, of who you are in the dream, or who anybody else is, or any environment or any situation, you'll see that it is totally fluid. There are no icebergs in the dream in the sense of something that has its own hard nature that's impermeable, resistant to all change, that it's just really absolutely there and there's nothing you can do about it, right? In the waking state, it seems like everything's that way, at least to a large extent. Like, okay, I'd like this paper to turn into a butterfly. Uh, I didn't. I guess it must be paper, <laughs> you know? So it really seems to be inherently existent paper, because turn into a butterfly. I mean, really? Uh, and it doesn't happen. Well, why? Because I'm not lucid in the waking state. Become lucid in the waking state, and suddenly waking reality becomes much more malleable as well. But in the dream state, we have a nice dress rehearsal to actually ascertain there is, and here's the way, here's the perfect phrasing for it, it's directly from His Holiness, and that is there is nothing that exists from its own side. That is there. In fact, I'll give you that, it made such an impression on me when, when His Holiness did it. Uh, but he was talking about what exactly is the object to be refuted when we're, we're following classic Galupa approach, Chandrakirti approach, ontological investigation into the nature of existence. And of course, we're not saying, as I attend to Carissa, for example, back to Carissa, we'll get to Carlos and other people here, but Chris is right there, looming large in my field of vision. And I'm attending, well, if I'm trying to attend to the lack of inherent existence of Carissa, does this mean, okay, I got it, Carissa doesn't exist? Well, now it's just nihilism. Oh, I got it, Carissa is just a figment of my imagination. Well, that means she's not even a sentient being. So both of those are nihilism. I just knock her out and say, no, she doesn't even exist. Because she's not self. She's not, a, she's not self. Well, then she doesn't exist at all, so nihilism. Oh, well, she's just a figment of my imagination. That's nihilism. So at the same time, she appears to be truly existent. I can apprehend her as being truly existent. What exactly is it that's being refuted, that isn't there, that doesn't exist? And His Holiness said it, a moment, this can be so elaborate and so sophisticated, when you go into Nagarjuna, Chantakirti, Aryadeva, and so forth. But I love the way His Holiness just cuts through it. And he says, when you're pointing your finger, you're pointing for you this time to Vicky. 
when I point my finger over there, where's Vicky? Vicky's right over there. Carlos, Vicky's right there. She's right there. And his holiness said, Zukuzuksa, the Almighty. That which you're pointing your finger to, that really is there. You know, Vicky, over there, from her own side. That's exactly what doesn't exist. And if you think about a dream, from the waking perspective, now we're awake, presumably. Think back to the dream, and think of doing this in a dream, where you could visualize, you could dream of Vicky being as vivid as she is right now. Some dreams are incredibly vivid, realistic, lifelike. So Vicky could appear, I mean, every strand of the hair could still be there in a dream, that clear. And moreover, I could come over and say, Vicky, are you real? And I could poke her in the shoulder. Are you real? Are you there? And by gum, it feels just like I thought it would feel. That is, the sensations on my fingertip. I mean, I think your shoulder's pretty much like mine. It'll feel just like that. Oh, oh, you are there, right? You'll feel just that in a dream. She's not going to be spongy. You won't just put, put your finger through her like she doesn't exist. You know, there will be tactile sensations if you go poke her in the shoulder. And so it seems like she, oh, she's really there. But from our waking perspective right now, thinking back to the dream, and having that sense Vicky is really over there, we know from our perspective, Vicky wasn't there. There was no one th there from her own side. She appeared to be. I can even go over and walk her and poke her in the shoulder. But there's no one there from her own side. And we know that from the waking perspective. But we don't know that from the perspective of a non-lucid dream. Hence the old big misleading advice. If you want to know whether you're dreaming, pinch yourself. Doesn't work. <laughs> you can go ahead and pinch yourself all you like and it will feel pinchy uh, in a dream. And so the point here, I was rather long-winded, but there's a whole gradient here from that implicit knowledge that you are dreaming, so you can hit the ejector button when you wish, to really ascertaining that although Carlos in the dream appears to exist from his own side, actually knowing that which I'm pointing my finger at from his own side does not exist. There is nothing there. There is nothing here that exists from its own side by its own nature. So that's, that would be a very, very lucid dream, which means that the dream becomes fluid. That is, you can simply start redesignating, redesignating, and that you can shift the dream subjectively and objectively, quite radically. So back to the question here. So here's this implicit dreaming. I frequently tell myself to stop dreaming that. However, I don't feel lucid. How can I take my, take my dreams into the next level of lucidity? Yeah, good. So this has come up twice in one-on-one in, in -on -one meetings. And being in retreat, where there are, once again, so few demands on our time, is, on the one hand, a really wonderful opportunity uh, to really start practicing lucid dreaming and dream yoga. Because, after all, we don't meet here until 9 o'clock. And if you skip breakfast, it's probably not the end. If you slept through breakfast, that's not the end of the world. Uh, so, really, you just have to wake up by quarter till nine, and you'll still be here on time, right? So, even if you, you know, oversleep here, not a problem. You'll probably be up by 8.45. Whereas, when you're in regular life, maybe you need to be up at seven o'clock or eight o'clock to get to work and so forth, you get to late, you're really in trouble. So, on the one hand, this is a really marvelous opportunity where there's nothing to do besides practice Dharma, and why not turn it into a 24-7, day and night kind of practice, on the one hand. On the other hand, let's take these two practices, shamatha and dream yoga. Lucid dreaming is a preamble to dr dream yoga. Okay? Dream yoga is a profoundly transformative and liberating practice that can take you to enlightenment. 
Lucid dreaming is a very cool set of techniques to dream lucidly. So we like to take these two, lucid dreaming or dream yoga, and then shamatha. One is, one is foundational for the other, but it's not symmetrical. That is, dream yoga is not a foundation for achieving shamatha. It's just not. And I know quite a number of very adept lucid dreamers. It doesn't make them better in shamatha practice. It doesn't particularly enhance it. It's very cool. It's very interesting. It can be very meaningful. But it doesn't particularly enhance the relaxation, stability, or vividness of your attention on a daily basis. Whereas if you're cultivating shamatha, and you are cultivating these three qualities, that is a foundation for lucid dreaming and really advancing along the path of dream yoga. So there's an asymmetry here. Shamatha is foundational for dream yoga. Dream yoga is not foundational for shamatha. Right? That said, this is really a shamatha environment. And it took, as you can see, a lot of effort to create such a marvelous environment with the food and everything else. So the short, short advice here would be that if you wish to kind of start venturing into enriching your your nighttime experience, becoming more lucid in dreams and so forth, all very good, but I would strongly encourage you not to do so uh, to the detriment of your shamatha practice, because that will not be a good investment, because this is so good for shamatha, you know, and the time is short. I think, frankly, I think we've chosen about, about as short a time as we can that is sufficient for people who would like to go from this retreat into a long-term retreat and simply achieve shamatha. And we had a number of people already who are now in long-term retreat from the last eight-week retreat. And none of them said, oh, I feel ill-prepared. It was too short. I don't, I'm, I'm, I don't really know about the practice. Oh, I don't know what to do. None of them saying that. I think all of them who are now in long-term retreat from the last eight-week retreat went right into it with confidence. And as I'm receiving feedback from them, they're, they're, they're doing the work. But none of them are saying, oh, I'm so confused. I don't know how to practice. That was too short. None of them are saying that. But I don't think I'd want to pare it down to seven weeks, six weeks, five weeks. I think eight weeks is good. Okay? So there we are. So all of that was a preamble. For the time being, let's take this incrementally. And over these eight weeks, now and again, I will return uh, to, with greater and greater depth to the practice of lucid dreaming, dream yoga. For the time being, I would just suggest this. Okay? I want to take it just step by step. This person has very good dream recall. Uh, not of us, a lot of us probably don't have that good dream recall. Maybe we remember one. Some people might not remember any quite frequently. And so if we draw on the really the wonderful practical insight of the modern discipline of lucid dreaming from Stephen Leberge, Paul Tolai, Jane Gackenbach, and others working as researchers in that field, what they have found uh, is that if you'd like to develop the lucid, lucid dreaming ability, the first step is to increase your dream recall. So you really can remember your dreams and remember this when some detail. And so one method for doing so is when you wake up to immediately go back into the dream and try to recall it and then write it down. Write it down. Okay? So that shouldn't take a lot of time. That should not put a big dent in your shamatha practice. And then as you do that from one dream and five dreams and ten dreams, then you may very well start to, find, to recognize some dream signs. Some dream signs. Okay? And dream signs, this is straight from the lucid dreaming discipline. The dream signs are people, activities, situations, emotions, places. People, situations, places, activities, emotions. Something like that. That are recurrent. That are common. Uh, so maybe one person <coughs> crops up again and again in your dreams. 
quite frequently. Maybe it's a place. You're often in a certain place. You say, oh, this place again. Or a situation. Maybe you're traveling. Maybe you're cooking. Maybe you're taking care of your children. You're gardening. But it's an activity. Activity could be in multiple places, but it's the same activity, right? Maybe it's an emotion. The emotion in a lot of dreams is one of anxiety. That's a common dream sign for a lot of people. Kind of an anxiousness, right? Uh, so whatever it is, when as you, if you're chronicling your dreams and you get 10, 20 of them, then go back and do a meta-analysis, check through and say, all right, were, were these completely sporadic, unrelated, with no overlap? Or are there some commonalities? Probably not in every single dream, but maybe, you know, pretty frequently. Oh, oh, that, that out of 20 <coughs> dreams, that took place five times. That took six, this time four. Four times, so you start to see what are your own individual dream signs, okay? Your dream signs. And so this is just, this is not the ancient wisdom of dream yoga. This is the modern insight of lucid dreaming. And recognize for yourself what are, it may be people, again, emotions, etc., etc. And so note those. And then the daytime practice, this is flat-out lucid dreaming practice. We'll get to dream yoga later. But the daytime practice is, and this is a very good exercise, and it's very congruent with or mutually supportive with shamatha, is to develop what is called prospective memory. Prospective memory, okay? Um, now, you need this in shamatha. So I'm going I'm to turn this into a little bit of a dharma talk. I guess I already have. But in shamatha practice, should... You're going to sit down now for 24 minutes, and let's imagine you're following your breath, let's imagine you're focusing at the apertures of the nostrils. Let's imagine you chose that, okay? Now, over the course of 24 minutes, it's very possible that your mind might wander on occasion. <laughs> could happen, you know? Stranger things have happened. It could happen your mind becomes a bit dull on occasion, right? Now, there are things to do when that occurs. First of all, if, you, if excitation arises, what's the first thing to do? What's the first thing to do? Oh, before you relax, what's the first thing to do? What's that? Yeah, recognize it. <laughs> right? You're not going to do anything else. You're not going to apply any other antidote if you don't recognize that excitation or dullness has set in. So the first thing is, recognize it as swiftly as possible. Right? So when I'm sitting in my room, and it's getting around 10 o'clock, or it's getting around 2 o'clock, then I'm in an, an anticipatory mode. I may, may be in light meditation, but if I hear, I don't think, don't worry, it'll go away. <laughs> right? Not the appropriate response at 10 o'clock or at 2 o'clock. This is the time, hey, you know, get up, answer the door, you're on call here, right? So that's prospective memory. Now, if it's at 7 o'clock at night, and I hear knock-knock. Of course, I'm not rude. If, if I think it's somebody really on my door, then I will go, of course. That's what I'm here for. But it's, it's happened before that it's, it's not knocking on my door. It's just some knocking outside. Some, it's some other noise. It's not my business, right? So my mode at 7 o'clock in the evening is different than at 5 till 10 or 5 till 2. This is prospective memory. That, Alan, be aware now. You may be meditating now. Be light and... As soon as, that knocking as soon as that knocking occurs, there's something to do. Get up and answer the door. Okay? That's prospective memory. 
So in a similar fashion, there you are in your 24-minute session, should excitation come knocking on your door and your mind is caught up, it's carried away in thoughts, the first thing is recognize it. The second thing is applying the remedy. And, you, and I heard the right remedy. The first thing is relax, loosen up. And in mindfulness of breathing, simply release without a second thought, with no interest. Release whatever it was that caught your attention and come gently right back. Okay? That's prospective memory. Okay? And you trigger it with, with introspection and then you go into retrospective memory. Now what do I do? Oh yeah, I relax. And likewise for dullness, recognize it and arouse and focus. So this is prospective memory. We need it in shamatha practice. Otherwise you'll be sitting there and you'll, you'll forget that you're supposed to do something when your mind is wandering. Well, wandering happens. What can you do? You know? And so that's prospective memory. Well, coming back briefly to lucid dreaming. Prospective memory. Once you've seen some of your dream signs, once, once you've recognized some of your dream signs, these recurrent situations and so forth that occur in the dream, then remember what they are. That's, pro that's retrospective memory. What are your dream signs? They'll be different for people. Probably no one's going to have the same set. Right? No one. Not in this room. Everybody will have their own unique set. So what are your own individual, unique, personal dream signs? Remember them. Hold them in your, you know, back of your mind. And then, throughout the course of the day, throughout the course of the day, should any of those dream signs occur? Maybe, maybe a person you often dream of is a person here. It could happen. A number of your friends are married or what have you. It could be a situation. It could be eating. It could be making your bed. It could be brushing your teeth. It could be going for a walk. It could be... But if any dream sign occurs during the daytime, and first thing is recognize it. Ah, that's one of my dream signs, right? Recognize it as soon as possible. Oh, this is one of my dream signs. Okay, that's the first thing. Just like introspection in shamatha practice. And then as soon as you recognize, ah, so let's imagine it's eating. Maybe you just often dream of eating. Well, it happens three times a day here. So when you're there in the kitchen, re recognize, hey, this is, this, this, is the, this is the dining hall. This is, eat this is one of my dream signs. Recognize it. This is a dream sign. Now, of course, you assume that you're awake. So you say, well, okay, big deal. That's a dream sign, but now I'm awake. But bear in mind, in a non-lucid dream, that's exactly the attitude that you don't even think about whether you're sleeping or dreaming. You say, well, this is just what's happening. So as soon as you recognize a dream sign, then ask yourself. It's, what's, what, it's what Stephen LeBaris calls a critical reflective attitude. Ask yourself seriously. Might I be dreaming? That's a question that hardly ever comes up in a dream. Might I be dreaming? Is it possible? I, could I be dreaming right now? That's a question that hardly comes up in dreams. We just take everything at face value, right? But ask yourself, could I be dreaming, right? And you've... I, I've actually raised that issue and then tried to answer the question by seeing how realistic the dream appeared. And that doesn't work. I had a really realistic... It was a couple of months ago, but I had a really realistic dream. And then I had this thought, could I be dreaming? And I, and I just carefully investigated Nah, it's too real. It turned out to be a dream, <laughs> just a really vivid one, right? And so here we're in an environment where, you know, they know that we're here to practice Dharma. 
And so in the dining hall, it might be a little bit odd. But one easy test, and it really is a very good test. This one doesn't work. Pinching doesn't work. But this test does work. And that is, if you really are wondering, might I be dreaming? Just jump. Just jump straight up. Jump straight up. Don't jump off of anything. Just, <laughs> just jump straight up. And if you're dreaming, the chances are very, very high that, number one, you will come down, but you won't come down in the same way that you do in the waking state. You're going to come down more like, I think we've all seen the astronauts on the moon, <laughs> right? Remember, they, but they, they come down slower. You're going to come down like that. Gravity, dream gravity is not the same as waking state gravity. And you might even go up and hover for a while. If you do, either your shamatha practice is going extremely well, or else you're dreaming. Okay? You're probably dreaming. So, so there's one. There's one thing you can do. I'm going on a bit more elaborately than I intended. But there's one thing. Dream signs, prospective memory, recognize the dream signs, and then do a state check. Do a state check. You probably know that you can write a note, read it, put it out, read it again. If you're dreaming, it's probably changed. That's a real slam dunk. Okay? Or just jump. That'll do it. Um, but now, a final point with respect to this, and that is this is something very easy, and it will certainly not impinge upon or deter from your shamatha practice. And that is, as you fall asleep tonight, if you're interested, you may as well start tonight. It doesn't cost you anything. It won't disrupt your sleep, and it won't harm your shamatha at all. It once again, though, is an exercise in prospective memory. It's a very good overall ability to generate or to develop. And that is when you fall asleep tonight, and when you finish your final session, you may be practicing shamatha in the supine position, you're feeling drowsy, you get into your sleeping posture, you dedicate merit, okay, day's finished. Now anticipation and, and how do you say, prospective resolve. And that is as you're about to fall asleep, do so with the resolve that from the moment that after you've fallen asleep, as soon as you have a sense of waking up from sleep, so you have to fall asleep first, but as soon as you introspectively, so once again we're honing that ever important and enormously important faculty of introspection, as soon as you have a sense that you're waking up from sleep, get it as early as you can, when you just start feeling you're coming up, right? As soon as you recognize it, do something. And the do something is don't move. Don't move your body. Don't move anything. Breathe, of course, but nothing beyond breath. Don't hold your breath. And just don't move. Don't move your mind. Don't launch your mind into the day, into what's coming. Just don't move. Stay hovering right there in the present moment, stillness in mind, stillness in body. And then see if you can direct your attention backwards. What was your last experience? Where were you 10 seconds ago, 20 seconds ago? Was it, were you in a dream? And see, without becoming fully awake, whether you can kind of just tiptoe your way back into the last episode of your dream. Then relax. And see if you can fall asleep again and enter the dream lucidly. It's called a waking-induced lucid dream. Wild. A waking-induced lucid dream. Because you were awake, but it's from the waking stage you're going right into lucidity. It's one of the easiest ways to catalyze a lucid dream. Okay? Hola, so. So I went on and on. I won't normally do it that long, but I will on occasion. We have a few more minutes, questions or comments. We will have a silent day tomorrow, so savor the silence. It is golden. 
but before we are silent. And of course, we'll have our meal. We'll still be talking. I'll, I'll be there. We can talk. But anything else coming up right now that you'd like to share from your own experience, questions or insights? Yes. Uh, microphone coming. And Jennifer. Good. Okay. Can you speak about noble silence? This is a little different than Lone Pine, I think. No cooking chatter. Yeah, no cooking. We don't have to do anything here. I mean, you all, your folks all had to cook the meals in Lone Pine and so forth. Noble silence. I just like to call it silence. I'm not quite sure why it's called noble. <laughs> <laughs> it's, just, it's just being quiet. Let's not get too excited about this. Um, it's, a, it's, a, the default, it's the default mode, especially for shamatha. There are a few things that just stir up the mind and give rise to internal chatter, chit-chat, um, playbacks, commentary, and so forth. Few things stir up the mind as much as talking, you know. And so even the fact that we have this discussion period, that's going to, this is a cost-benefit analysis. And I try to make my words as meaningful as possible so that while I may be uh, kind of disturbing the minds of people a bit, you know, by talking and so forth, hopefully there'll be benefit, because I'm not just chatting here, that the benefit from our discussions here and when I go into a monologue, that will outweigh the disruption, the disturbance of the mind. Uh, and so overall, that if anyone, again, tomorrow or any other day, wishes to break silence, number one, first of all, I'd ask for courtesy for all of us, that you let other people remain in silence, which means they don't have to hear your conversation. Okay, it's like secondhand smoke. And you, you hear other people talk, you, you, you cannot help but understand, especially if they're speaking your language. But people didn't hear, come here to over, overhear other people's conversation. And so if you'd like to have, to have not silence to speak um, tomorrow for the rest of the retreat until the, last fi the final two days, then I would request let it be in a place where other people don't hear you. So go out for a walk. We have lots of space here. And, then, and have a consenting partner. And there you go. But overall, this time is so precious. Internet really clutters up the mind. I can guarantee that one. Emails. Joseph Goldstein has a lot of experience in this. He commented, sending emails. Now, I, I just have to. And some of you may need to as well. But what I would suggest is just keep it to an absolute minimum. Don't give daily reports. And how are you doing? And then your mind is getting hung. It didn't respond. I wonder why it didn't respond. Maybe something's wrong. Maybe it doesn't like me anymore. Maybe blah, 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 blah. You know, the mind will just go on to one rumination after another, wondering why it didn't respond. Oh, it did respond. Oh, good. Now I have more grist to talk about. You know, so email is just going to catalyze it, let alone going to the internet and all that stuff. You know, so insofar as it simply is necessary, then we do it. For me, I have to. I really, I can't go eight weeks and not enter it. I'd have hundreds and hundreds by the time I finished. Uh, so I need to. And that will probably be true of a number of you to varying extents. But frankly, the less the better. Telephone, internet, talking. Uh, and just savor the silence. And as much as possible, just maintain an unbroken flow, a continuity of this engaged attentiveness, present with the practice. It really is golden. And there aren't that many opportunities we have in ordinary, day, in ordinary life to be able to have day after day after day of just letting everything settle. So if we think of the mind, and I think it's a rather close analogy of the mind as being like a snow globe, you know, with the snow coming up. Everybody know the image? Yeah. 
every time we're talking, every time we go to internet, every time we do this stuff, it's shaking things up again. And so just overall, even with the one hour of real conversation, the rest is pretty much just guided meditation. I shouldn't disturb much. But this one hour, and maybe here and there, some conversation is helpful or meaningful. But overall, the idea is let the whole system calm down. The nervous system, the body, the mind, and just being really present. It's really precious time. So if we want to call that noble, okay. But that's what it's for. Good. Good. Anything else? Good. Close enough for me. So we'll have dinner. This will be our last uh, talking, uh, talking meal until we come to the end of the retreat. Um, but I think that should do it for now. So have a good dinner.